Remember what it was like to wait? We've kind of lost the experience of that in our current world in many ways. You go to the dentist office and you have time to kill as you're waiting. What do you do? Well, if you live in this part of the 21st century, then you pull out your globally connected supercomputer and do whatever you want within reason, right? There's an, there's an endless amount of stuff to occupy your mind with uh, that sort of alleviates the pain of waiting, flying even on an airplane, which ought to be sort of this endlessly fascinating experience. I've heard it described as I'm sitting in a metal tube in the sky. That should never get boring. But you get on an airplane, and even if you're excited to go somewhere, you get two hours into the flight, and you've been looking out the window as long as you can, and it seems to be creeping along, and this, this is taking longer than it, than it feels like it should. And it used to be that, that if you forgot to bring a book, all that was left was that magazine in the seat pocket in front of you. And maybe I was just not cultured enough, but I never found those particularly engaging. You just had to wait. You just had to wait. And we experienced the, the, the discomfort of waiting then in a way that has in some ways been taken away now. Now, this is bonus material here, but in some ways that might be a pointer to us to say, you know what, when you have time like that to wait, it might be a good idea to put away the globally connected supercomputer and just experience the waiting that God has in some ways designed us in our current state to experience, because there are some things that we really are very much waiting for. And uh, that experience of waiting, and the discomfort of it, the pain of it, the, the length of it, can help to, help to connect us to the experience of God's people throughout the ages. When they did not have nearly as many opportunities to distract themselves from the pain of waiting. They just had to wait. Sometimes for centuries. And that's what we find God's people doing in the beginning of Luke. They're waiting. They're waiting for a long time. They are in a line of God's people who have been waiting for centuries for God to do what he said he was going to do. And as we enter Luke 2, verses 22 to 40, we begin to see those who have been waiting saying, we found what we're waiting for. We, we see in, in this passage, Luke 2, 22-40, what they are waiting for and what they know they're waiting for. They acknowledge it. We also find what it is that they should be waiting for. And God's people, as much as they're waiting for what God told them he was going to give them, haven't caught everything God said he was going to give them. There are some things they ought to be waiting for, that they're also now going to need to adjust to now that they have arrived. We see both of those things in Luke 2, 20 through, uh, 22 through 40. Watch for those as I read our passage this morning. Luke 2, starting in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, 
Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God, and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. What we see in this passage is sort of packaged Within waiting, we we see people who are waiting, first of all, faithfully. At the beginning and end of the passage, we see Jesus' own parents doing something that's repeated over and over again. They're, They're doing what is according to the law of Moses. You see that in verse 22. You see it all the way down in verse 39. If your if your Bible has uh, has this passage on two pages, you may be doing a little bit of flipping back and forth at the beginning. Because the beginning and the end sort of package up this passage together. You see, Jesus' parents doing what is according to the law, according to the law of the Lord, according to what is said in the law of the Lord, verse 24. And then that's all finished up in verse 39. So you see that the faithful waiting according to the word of the Lord. They're waiting in... The, in, in a context of faithfulness to doing what God had said, including offering the sacrifices that God said needed to be offered in this context for purification after childbirth. They do that in verse uh, 23. They come to offer sacrifice to the Lord. They are faithful to what God has said, verse 23 about the fact that every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit, and the particular way in which they respond to this. 
But the basic idea that we see here first, at the beginning and end of the passage, is that the faithful are waiting in a way that matches with what God has called them to do. It's a right way to wait. The faithful are, are living according to the word of the Lord, and then the faithful are also waiting according to the word of the Lord. They're doing what the word of the Lord says, and they are waiting for the Lord to do what he has said he would do. And we see that in the sort of the next part of the brackets of the passage. See Jesus' parents being living faithfully, and then you see a couple of people within Israel who have been around for a long time waiting faithfully waiting for a long time. What are they waiting for? You have these two people. You have Simeon, who who evidently is old. We're not told that he is old, but it appears that he's waiting for death. He's been told that he's not going to die until he sees the Lord's Christ. And when he finally does, he says, Lord, here we are. It's finally time for me to go, I'm, you're, you're, you're releasing your servant from this waiting because I've seen what you've said you're sending. So it seems like he's been waiting for a long time, probably an old man. Anna is old. Depending on how it's translated, she is at least 84 years old, and she has been waiting for a long time as well. The very beginning of the passage about Simeon, and at the very end of the passage about Anna, there is a unique description of what they're waiting for. Look at verse 25. This man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, he's righteous and devout, is waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Some part of what that means is given to us in, in the description of what Anna is waiting for. At the very end of this passage about the faithful waiting in verse 38. Coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. Waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. They didn't make that up. These are not people who had come up with dreams for themselves and had decided that, well, if I believe strongly enough in my dreams, and if I work hard enough, then I can accomplish anything. So this is what I want. This is what I'm going to go after. These people are waiting according to the word of the Lord. This is language. The consolation of Israel and the redemption of Jerusalem is language that, is, that, it, that, that flows out of the rich supply of the words of Isaiah. Isaiah had told God's people, wait for this. Now, look at Isaiah 42. The consolation of Israel. Isaiah 40, rather. Verses 1 and 2, first. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Comfort my people. I'm going to complete my promises to you. I'm going to make it well for you. Comfort my people with these words. Then in verses 10 and 11 of Isaiah 40, Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. 
He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Comfort my people. I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to care for them. Wait, and it will happen. The, the, the place where the hopes of the people of Israel was centralized was in their capital city, in the city of Jerusalem, in the royal city of David, the city where David ruled, the city that represented God's promise to establish David's rule forever. And so there were special promises to Jerusalem itself. The other name for Jerusalem is Zion. And so we'll see that as we look at the promise of the redemption of Jerusalem in Isaiah 52. This is verses 8 to 10. They're waiting for the consolation of Israel and the redemption of Jerusalem. Actually, I'm going to start in in verse 7 of Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. They're watching. They're waiting. Imagine a watchman waiting in the middle of the night for something to happen. Maybe it's from morning to dawn. It's taking a long time. And now they see it. They see it happening. They see God reigning and they announce it to Jerusalem. Verse 9, break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. God will set up his rule among his people again. God will rule through a king that he will send through the line of David and he will do it forever. He will console Israel. He will redeem Jerusalem. God is always faithful to his word. He always is. What makes us question that sometimes? Well, sometimes what makes us question that is that, that while God is always faithful to his word, he's, he's somewhat rarely faithful to our schedule. He doesn't do it with the timing that we would expect, and so it's very easy for us to assume that God's promises have expired because our time frame has run out. And yet, and yet here in Israel In Jerusalem, in Zion that God has promised to redeem, you find some faithful people continuing to obey and continuing to wait according to his word. Both of these faithful people, Samuel and Anna, are waiting for what God has said, and they speak on his behalf as well. Both of them do. Uh, Simeon speaks uh, by the Holy Spirit, Anna is described as a prophetess. They're both speaking for God, and they both speak in a way that continues to be consistent with what God has promised. They're living and waiting according to the word of the Lord. There is more for the people to be waiting for than they generally recognize right now. 
And that's really what we find in the very middle of this passage. Even in the midst of people living faithfully, waiting faithfully, paying attention to the Word of God, there is a razor's edge to this passage that we find in the middle that, that says often even for God's people, even for those who are waiting faithfully, there is more for us to be waiting for than we grab onto naturally, than we grab onto automatically. There are things for us to adjust to. There's, there's even a foreshadowing of that fact in the very place where all this faithful waiting is happening. Where are they doing this? Where have Jesus' parents brought Jesus? Where is Simeon? Where is Anna? They're in Jerusalem, but even more specifically, they're in the temple. They're in the temple. And what is necessary in the temple? What must happen in the temple for God's people? Well, sacrifice, the shedding of blood over and over and over That's what has to happen there. That's what has to happen in order for God's people to draw near to him in the way that God has made available through the law of Moses. And that over and over againness has to send home the message, you know what, there must be something more. There must be a better sacrifice. It must be true that the blood of bulls and goats is incapable of taking away sin. God is gracious to give us these substitute sacrifices that he accepts from us when we offer them in faith, and yet we know by the very fact that we have to offer them over and over and over that they're incapable of cleansing us permanently. There must be something more for us to be waiting for, and there is. There is a redemption that's needed. There's a redemption that's here that's being presented at the temple in a way that maybe even Jesus' own parents don't recognize. When when a firstborn child was born within Israel, uh, his parents were responsible to pay a five-shekel payment, an ounce or two of silver. And no doubt, uh, Jesus' parents do that. They're faithful to everything that's said in the law of the Lord about what they should do when their child is born. And yet, that redemption payment isn't actually mentioned in Luke. He doesn't say, he doesn't talk about them offering the redemption payment, but they do offer something. They do present something to the Lord. There's the sacrifice for the purification after childbirth. There's something else that they present to the Lord in verse 22. Their son. They bring their son. That wasn't actually required in the law. What was required in the law was that they would redeem their son. But what they do here, perhaps along with making that payment, what Luke draws out is that they present their son. They're bringing their son into the temple. Here is a picture from the beginning that Jesus is not so much redeemed as he is redeemer. God has a special plan for him that he's going to do more for the people than the people, any of the people, including his own parents, do for him. We begin to see that in sort of the the, the content center of this passage. The faithful living, the faithful waiting, those have been going on in Luke, and that's continued consistently here. 
And something in particular happens in the middle in verses 28 through 35. There's a two-part statement by Simeon. He, he, he talks to Jesus' parents and to others at first. He, he speaks more broadly, it seems, in verses 28 through 32, and then privately to Jesus' parents in verses 33 through 35. And what he says first very closely describes what God's people are waiting for. And then privately, he adds to that, he expands on that, and, and tells Joseph and Mary what God's people should be waiting for. They're very much consistent with each other. One part is especially surprising. Look first at what God's people are waiting for. We could call this the news of salvation. Simeon takes this child in his arms, and he blesses God and says, verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. You've, you've promised us salvation. You've promised that you're going to make things right for your people. You've promised that you're going to rescue us. You're promised, you've promised that you're going to take everything that's broken and fix it and 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 you gave to me this, this person that nobody's ever heard about before. You gave to me the promise that I would not see death until I saw the one who was going to accomplish it. I would not see death until I saw life. And here I, I hold him in my arms. This is the one who will bring your salvation. Your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all the peoples. This is, a, this is a global promise. This is a promise that will extend in some way beyond us to all the other nations, to the Gentiles. This is a light of revelation to the Gentiles. You're going to reveal something even to them, even to the people who are out in the sort of the outer darkness, nationally speaking. And we are going to experience the glory of the salvation that you bring. This is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Now, that description probably doesn't sound that unusual compared to what's been said about Jesus already in the Gospel of Luke. It, it's not that different from what Jesus' parents had been told, either directly or through the shepherds, about who Jesus was going to be. This was going to be the one who was called the Son of God. This is going to be the one who was going to reign on the throne of David over Israel forever. This is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. These are the kinds of things that Jesus' parents have heard already. And so they're expecting them. And yet, in verse 33, look at their response. This is curious. And his father and his mother marveled, at what was said about him. Why'd they do that? They've heard great things about Jesus already. Why are they marveling now? They're still trying to make sense of all this. And we can sympathize with that, right? Uh, maybe, maybe it's because of the, the Gentile thing. That hasn't explicitly been said so far that this will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles, that you've prepared this in the presence of all peoples, although... 
Even that would have been language that they were familiar with, that Israel, led by the Messiah, was going to be uh, something significant to the whole world. And yet, here, they marvel at what's said about him. Maybe the Gentile thing is just a part of the bigger issue for them. Maybe they marveled because they're kind of like us. And maybe they share our tendency to shrink God's plan down to a size that we can handle right now. You do that sometimes? You hear God say really big things about you in his word as a Christian and not really know what to do with them, so kind of just shrink them down to what you can handle today. Peter, in his epistle, says things like, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have things in, uh, in Luke even about how Christ's people are going to be his witnesses starting in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. We have this description in Ephesians of us being a new humanity who are created in Christ Jesus for good works. There, there's this pattern overall that God is going to use us, his people, individually and together to do things that matter forever to to bring the redemption that Jesus has purchased to the whole world. And sometimes it's easy to look at that and think, okay, that's more than I can handle. That's more than I can make sense of. Uh, Maybe what that all means is that I'm basically just supposed to be a nice person and not use swear words or something like that. We have this tendency to take the, the big call of God, the big identification that God gives us about ourselves, and shrink it to what we can manage today. Shrink it to what matches with what our eyes see today of ourselves. I wonder if any of that is going on with Joseph and Mary here. They've been told things about Jesus, and they see things about Jesus as well. They see that they have to carry him around, change his diapers. He's totally dependent on them. What matches their experience today? Well, what matches their experience is that he's a child, And he's their child. He kind of fits into their life. A global savior that God has promised, that's consistent with what they've been told. Uh, it, 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 It blows away what their eyes see day to day in their experience. And so they hear it again, and they marvel at what's said about him. God is not concerned about what's too big. God's actually concerned about what's too small. We actually see that in Isaiah 49, verse 6. This picture of being a global Savior is exactly what God points to there. Isaiah 49, 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. You're going to do that. That's too light. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. He's going to give God's people more than they ordered, and something different than they ordered. In order to be the Savior, this is a Savior, Christ the Lord, and in order to be that Savior, this needs to be the Lord's Christ. This needs to be the kind of Christ that the Lord would send, 
not only the kind of Christ that we would ask for on our own. That is going to mean an adjustment, even a painful adjustment on the part of God's people, and many will show that they're not interested. We actually see that in the second set of descriptions about Jesus from Simeon in verse, verses 34 through 35. What should they be waiting for? Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Remember that theme of reversal? This idea of of taking people who are naturally admired and setting them down and taking people who are not naturally admired and exalting them Mary has actually sung about this herself uh, as, as, as she sings, it seems, with, with uh, Elizabeth. And she describes how in chapter 1, verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And Jesus is going to keep doing that. That is an introduction to something we're going to see throughout Luke, these reversals of the high and the low. Not, not just the social high and the social low, the, the spiritually high and the spiritually low, or really the people who see themselves as spiritually high and those who know themselves to be spiritually low. This is not just for the righteous poor who really deserve a better shot at the pursuit of happiness. Jesus is not here to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. That's chapter 5, verse 32. That's coming. That kind of reversal saves people. That's that's what Jesus is doing with the reversal as he comes. He's come to do this to save people. And that kind of saving, that kind of reversal, doesn't flatter anybody. Those who are not saved or those who are. When salvation shows up only for sinners, people object. And so that's the next description, verse, second part of verse 34. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, the reversal of positions, and for a sign that is opposed. He's going to be opposed. We talked about signs this morning in LDC and the fact that a sign is something that demonstrates something else, that, that is a picture of something else that's true. It represents a fact just by being there. And Jesus, just by being there, is a sign that's going to be opposed because when he shows up, he shows people about themselves that they don't want to see. Like what? Like whatever makes you or me feel spiritually superior on our own. Whatever it is that makes me feel comfortable on my own merits in the presence of God. However it is that I finish the sentence, I know I'm not perfect, but we we, we will all be willing to say, I know I'm not perfect, right? And we all probably naturally have a way of filling in that sentence. I know I'm not perfect, but... What way of filling in that sentence makes you feel most comfortable before God? Makes you feel most qualified before Him? 
I, I know I'm not perfect, but, uh, but I, I, I do try really hard. I, I know I'm not perfect, but I try to be a thoughtful person. I know I'm not perfect, but I try to admit what I don't know. I know I'm not perfect, but I live a pretty clean life. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm better than those people. If you feel particularly comfortable about how God must think of you, or why God must at least sort of let you off the hook, because you're intelligent, or because you're on the right side of history, however you might define that, or because you come from a cleaner culture, or, or because life has just been really hard for you, and other people have treated you poorly, and God ought to cut you some slack, Whatever, however it is that you fill in that sentence, it's that thing that actually puts you at a disadvantage. Because Jesus did not come to save those who justify themselves. Jesus didn't come to save those who fill in that sentence on their own. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost and every one of us who in some way or another, tries to describe ourselves as not being lost, are at a disadvantage, blinded. It's not that being a sinner makes somebody more humble. That's not why Jesus came to seek and to save sinners, because they're naturally more humble. The problem is that sin is so sneaky, so tricky, so insidious, that it can take the good things about us and use them to blind us to the fact that we are every bit as needy as the people that we think we're better than. <clears throat> blind us to the fact that we are every bit as needy as the tax collector and the prostitute. If my need is the same as somebody that I look at and say, oh, yeah, they, they need a Savior. If my need is the same, but I'm blinded by sort of the cleanness of my life, or the fact that, that I fit socially, then I'm in worse trouble. Now, as, as believers in Christ, we are those who have said no. We are in total need, total need of a Savior. And yet, even we, don't we need to be brought back to this realization? We need to be brought back to the fact that our need is completely met in Christ. Even we can, in our daily experience, stumble over what's revealed about us when we're in the presence of Jesus. And that stumbling needs to bring us back to the fact that Jesus also deals with that. That, that Jesus is here to fix the problem that is revealed about us when he shows up. That's what needs to be our place of comfort, our place of confidence in the presence of God. I know I'm not perfect, and Jesus is. I know I'm not perfect, and his sacrifice is. I know I'm not perfect, and I'm safe before God because of him. Naturally speaking, that's a sign that we oppose. And that's true of everyone. Everybody is going to have to adjust to the kind of Savior that Jesus is. Everybody's going to have to adjust to what Jesus reveals about us when he shows up. 
I think that's pointed to in the, the third of the four descriptions that's given privately to Joseph and Mary. He's appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, a reversal. People aren't going to like that. He's given for a sign that is opposed. In verse 35, it's almost as if in a whisper, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. He says that to Mary. Everybody is going to have to adjust to, to what it means for Jesus to be the Lord's Christ. It could be so easy to think, well, I, of course I'm a Christian. I'm the Christ's mother. I just have sort of a natural relationship with him, and that's what makes me belong to him. It, even Mary herself, who is described as a faithful, believing, godly woman, is going to experience something like a sword piercing her own soul. I've always, as I've read that, I've always sort of assumed, well, that's got to be a description of Jesus seeing her own son crucified. And in one sense, I think that's included with this. But it's included because it means that Mary is going to have to adjust to what it means for this to be the Lord's Christ. He's not just hers, and he's going to do this differently than she expects. You even see Mary and Jesus' other brothers showing up to try to find Jesus in chapter 8. And the people come to him and say, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. They, they seem bewildered by how he's doing what he's doing. And Jesus at that point says, that's not how my relationship with people works. Nobody is automatically connected to me through some kind of natural uh, relationship. The one who is my brother and sister and mother is the one who hears the word of God and does it. It turns out to be especially the word of God about him. The one who ultimately doesn't stumble over him. The one who ultimately doesn't oppose the sign that he is. It's going to require an adjustment. A painful adjustment, even for Jesus' own mother. Being a Christian doesn't become easier or more natural, just because you're the mother of the Christ. As he does this, as he, he comes and results in the fall and rising of many in Israel, a sign that's, that's opposed, a painful realization and adjustment even for Jesus' own mother, the thing that will cause people to object most strongly is the last description, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus shows up and he shows us what's true about ourselves. Even what we've been so good at hiding inside of ourselves because we're so good at sort of having a cleaned up life, even using God's principles for having a cleaned up life. And it can make us feel like, yeah, we've, we've got this set. We are acceptable before God, and Jesus shows up among people who would say exactly that, and shows them that exactly the opposite is true. I'll give us just a little preview of that in chapter 4, when Jesus shows up and begins in Luke his public ministry, what happens? Well, he shows up among people who listen to the Word of God, who like good preaching. He reads from Isaiah and he 
rolls up the scroll. This is in chapter 4. I'm looking at verse 20 right now. He rolls up the scroll and gives it back to the attendant and sits down. Everybody's looking at it. And then verse 22, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. What This, this guy's a great preacher. Who is this person? This, this, I really like listening to this guy. Uh, we'll, we'll accept him. And, and then they begin to say something just a little bit different. And they say, is not this Joseph's son? Wait a minute, this is, this is one of us. And so maybe there's a little bit of surprise, like, wow, home, hometown boy makes good. Look what a great preacher this guy is. And maybe some people also saying, well, wait a minute, is this guy really so special? He's a hometown boy. And Jesus uses that segue to tell them, I'm going to be a sign that you oppose. And to show them the thoughts from your heart are going to be revealed by my being here. And he begins to tell them, you're going to reject me. You're going to reject me, and this is the way it's happened among God's people, and the blessing of God as a result has gone out to people outside of Israel who didn't reject him. You're, you're going to reject me, and the blessing is going to go elsewhere. And the people say, you can't say that about us. You can't do that. You can't say that we're going to reject you. If, we, if you do, we're going to try to throw you off a cliff. And that's what they do at the end of Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the, to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. He shows up and by being who he is, and as a result, saying what he says, he reveals the thoughts of hearts. It comes out very, very quickly. He shows them who they are. You want to be revealed like that? You want to have the thoughts of your heart exposed by someone? Remember, this is part of the good news. It sounds like Simeon is giving good news in the first explanation and bad news in the second, right? He's not. He's giving good news in both. The second half is uncomfortable good news. But boy, is it ever uncomfortable news that we need. We need someone who will come and be the Lord's Christ, who will be this kind of Christ. Who will be appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, for the reversal of situations before God, who will be a sign that is opposed because of the ways that we oppose things, who will require a painful adjustment, and who will reveal the thoughts of our hearts now, that has to happen. If you want that to happen, what kind of a person do you want to do it? That's where this comes back to the good news. Well, you want a good person to do it. Jesus, as he arrives, causes people to be bewildered. They cause him to wonder, he causes them to wonder. He causes them to marvel. He causes them to have trouble putting all the pieces together. It's hard. Mary stores up these things and treasures them in her heart, trying to put clues together. They hear about Jesus, even things they've already heard, and they marvel, and they're bewildered because, in some ways, this is different from what they expect. It's an adjustment, and then it becomes an even harder adjustment. We don't understand him, but he's good. We see that over and over again, and we actually see that in this transition statement in verse 40. 
And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. You want to have your thoughts exposed? What would make it good news? Well, it's good news if it's done by a good person. And here is a person who, though he is bewildering, is good. As Jesus grows, as a young person, 10 years old, he, he, he's growing in wisdom. He's filled with wisdom. This is not a sanctimonious brat among his brothers and sisters. Sometimes when we think about a really, really good child, sometimes that's the best that we can imagine, right? Is a high achiever who's also a little tattletale. And as Jesus grows, he's different from that. He doesn't come to his mother Mary and say, um, I just wanted you to know that James is planning on skipping Sabbath school to go play in the lake. I just thought that you should know that. I know that um, because I have insight into my brother. And then James walks into the room and Jesus helps his mother kind of give his brother a pitying look like, what's wrong with you? That's not him. That's, that's not the way that Jesus exposes the thoughts of many hearts. Even at 10 years old, he is filled with wisdom, the kind, the kind of wisdom that James himself actually describes, a wisdom that is pure and peaceable and gentle and reasonable and full of mercy and good fruits. This person bewilders us, but he is good. And as a result, worth trusting worth adjusting to, worth giving ourselves to. Father, you know that it, it is, uh, in, in many ways, it's a daily adjustment for us, a daily taking up of our cross to follow Jesus, to follow this one who is so good that when he's in our presence, he reveals us as we are. And yet this is good news for us because Jesus is perfectly good. Perfectly good before you, perfectly good to us. So, Father, would you help us by your Spirit to follow him in faith through all the adjustments that he calls us to. Thank you that in the end he is the one who brings consolation and redemption and salvation to all peoples, including us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.